Welcome to Switch the Envelope presents Cinovations Special Effects Makeup Part 2. Part 2? Don't we try and get these things in under 20 minutes? Yeah, usually yes. <laughs> but the wonderful world of special effects makeup is so rich with history and cinovation, Jeff, we had to break it into parts. Well, if you haven't listened to part one yet, please pause this episode, turn the vinyl over, and listen to side A. We promise we'll be right here when you return. Welcome back to Switch the Envelope Presents Innovations Special Effects Makeup Part 2. Now on with the show. Yeah, nailed no, no that. <laughs> 5,300 miles away from the glitz and glamour of Hollywood, research scientist and inventor Edward A. Murphy was working on a new invention that would revolutionize the art of special effects makeup. But in that Fort Dunlop laboratory in Birmingham, England in 1929, Murphy's intention was not set on the world of movie cosmetics. When he whipped air into that batch of latex to create foam rubber, he was attempting to make our butts more comfortable. Murphy's foam rubber innovation led Dunlop Rubber Company to patent the Dunlop pillow. And a few years later, Murphy would become responsible for the first foam mattress. His aerated latex was the new pinnacle of comfort. And hot sex. <laughs> More importantly to the world of Hollywood, it could be molded into various shapes. Molded pieces could be made in advance to cut down on application time and each foam rubber application could be used multiple times. Within a few years, makeup artists began to use foam rubber to create their own prosthetic applications. Monster and character makeup was now easier to apply and provide better continuity day in and day out. Within a decade, Murphy's ass-cradling invention could become a bona fide synovation. Talking movies every week. Hosted by Jeff and Corey. <laughs> Early use of foam rubber prosthetics in Hollywood was not exactly widespread or battle-tested. One of the earliest films to use the new application was Paramount Pictures' 1931 horror classic, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The groundbreaking transformation makeup effects for the film including the use of foam rubber prosthetics, were the work of Wally Westmore. Fuck! Another Westmore? Damn, they keep popping up in early Hollywood like weeds in a garden, Jeff. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, as it turns out, is a pretty significant film for the history of special effects makeup. Not only was Wally one of the first to use foam rubber facial prosthetics to transform actor Frederick March into the embodiment of evil as Mr. Hyde, but remember that makeup trick that they used in the octopus? I mean, if they really went back and listened to part one, they definitely remember it. Well, as much as it pains me to praise Hollywood makeup nepotism, credit for that amazing special effect goes to Wally Westmore. He used red makeup on March that appeared or disappeared when cinematographer Carl Struss moved a red light filter in front of the camera lens. It's not bad for Wally's first job in film makeup. He's like the new employee that comes into a job and tries really, really hard, and everyone's like, slow down, Wally. You're making us all look bad. 
Well, good old Wally's ambition was not without his pitfalls. The rubber cement that he used to attach the foam rubber prosthetics fused the application to Fred March's face. And when they tried to remove them, they also removed layers of Fred's face. Are you kidding me? They took rubber cement and glued shit to his face. Yeah. Wow. Could they not find anything else to permanently disfigure someone? How about some super glue or maybe a little bit of borax? Man, these people were dicks. Yeah. True. Emergency room visits aside, the versatility and visual look of the foam rubber applications was very impressive. Over the course of the next eight or so years, makeup artists would put into practice safer removal procedures. I mean, they had to. They were going to be removing half the guy's faces. <laughs> yeah. Too many doctor bills <laughs> started to pile up. Changes to the foam rubber process and formulas would also help. And soon, the future of special effects makeup was in full swing. One of the first films to use an extensive amount of foam rubber applications was The Wizard of Oz in 1939. The practice of using prosthetic makeup by that point had become, well, safe enough that makeup artist Jack Dawn used foam rubber applications on nearly every member of that cast, from the Wicked Witch to the Cowardly Lion, the Scarecrow and the Tin Man, dozens of munchkins, and of course, those flying monkeys. The task of applying the makeup to almost every actor on set was a huge undertaking. Let me guess. During this movie, they used a nail gun to apply <laughs> all of the prosthetics. It was, it, was a, it was an industrial staple gun, but staple you're, you gun? were close. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I just want to make sure. They used, <laughs> they used full nails to put the noses on the witch. They could hide the staples. The nail heads were too big. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I don't believe so. I, I don't believe they They had some sort of adhesive that by, you know, this time worked better. <laughs> okay. They're like, oh, all that blood that's coming out of your forehead? Don't worry about that. We'll we'll take care of that with yeah. the emergency room bills. That adds to the uh, character you're playing. <laughs> <laughs> but the task of putting makeup applications on all of these characters was so huge that Dawn was soon training members of other studio departments, such as mailroom employees on how to apply the various looks for the film. And I'm sure they were totes professional. <laughs> <laughs> and it was all safe, and nobody got hurt. Yeah. Except for that time they almost killed Buddy Epson, because the aluminum dust in the Tin Man makeup nearly suffocated him to death. Well, there's that. The only thing they thought they could do for him was douse him in a can of oil. <laughs> when that didn't help the Tin Man... They covered up any mention of his extreme allergic reaction to the makeup. They didn't even tell his replacement, Jack Haley. Or what about the time that the Wicked Witch of the East or West? East? North? The Green Witch. Green Witch Margaret Hamilton suffered second and third degree burns when the copper in her makeup turned into molten lava on her skin because she got too close to the pyrotechnic that masked her character's getaway in the first scene in Munchkinland. Tragedy in Munchkinland. It was. It was. <laughs> that is true. But... They should have given her a lollipop. <laughs> From the lollipop <laughs> guild. <laughs> That's all true, Jeff. Technically, those injuries weren't because of the foam rubber? Still, early filmmakers were dicks. 
And as you will find out in next week's episode, when you're a dick, you don't make it through the horror film. They're the ones that die first. In general, don't be a dick. (laughs) Don't be a dick, because you're not going to make it through the horror film. (laughs) Beyond the packed makeup trailers and copious amounts of foam rubber, including the tiny bits that they saved over to make a boatload of condoms for munchkin orgies, the Wizard of Oz has one of the cleverest uses of special effects makeup. And it's one that generally goes unnoticed. The shot this trick happens in is the moment Dorothy opens the door of her house to reveal that the tornado in Kansas has dropped her in a world of vibrant color. A shot that is unbroken and seemingly starts in black and white. There is no strategically placed matte painting or double exposure with an optical printer. The key to this illusion is that the shot is entirely in color. The house set piece, as well as the body double for Judy Garland's Dorothy, were made up to match the look of the black and white footage from the beginning of the film. When the double, in her monochromatic costume and makeup, opened the door, the camera moved past her, and Judy Garland completed the Texas switch as she stepped into frame in full color. For all the credit, that gets paid to the Wizard of Oz for being a pioneer of color in film. The first full color shot you see in the movie is actually in fake black and white. The Wizard of Oz executed a head-turning amount of makeup effects, both old and new for the time. They used color corrective hues for the opening and closing sequences in black and white, used foam rubber to transform an entire cast, and then played into an audience's expectations in order to trick their eye. That door opening in the film is a bit of art imitating life. As the film industry began to embrace color film, they would have to abandon all they knew to venture forward into a new world. For some, the journey forward became a yellow brick road too far. Oh my God, wow. Yeah, no, that was a good one. No. That's the best joke I've written in this entire episode, Jeff. That is a, uh, that's, that's a bad one. <laughs> Back on the wall? Back on the wall. All right. While MGM was carving a new path for Cinovation with their color films like Oz and Gone with the Wind, Universal and the head of their makeup department, Jack Pierce, weren't so quick to turn their gothic horror monoliths into rubber-laden technicolor spectacles. Pierce did begin to use some foam rubber applications, but stood firmly by his time-consuming methods of painstaking, layer-by-layer applications. Universal also found itself, proverbially, stuck in time as Lemley's control began to dwindle. The result of his bloated production budgets in the mid-30s meant the tightening of belts in the years that followed. Their monsters remained a North Star for the studio, but lower budgets and the loss of bigger stars to competing studios meant their large spectacle super productions were relegated to B-movie status. Pierce remained the head of Universal's makeup department through the Second World War and crafted notable looks like the Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr. Even though Pierce's monsters had made him an icon of the industry, he was unceremoniously fired from Universal in 1946. Pierce was known around Hollywood for his bullish demeanor and often butted heads with actors. He and Cheney Jr. famously had a heated relationship, though most accounts were exaggerated. His reluctance to adopt newer makeup techniques like foam rubber and his abrasive attitude, however, 
may not have been the deciding factors in his termination. With the new studio struggling to find its foothold in Hollywood, new management decided to turn away from the legacy B-movie properties and instead focus resources toward Oscar-baiting prestige pictures to compete with the likes of Warner Brothers and MGM. Pierce's replacement was a relatively uncredited newcomer that was dripping with nepotism. Yeah, that's right. Another fucking Westmore. Jack Pierce, well, he bounced around Hollywood in the years after, but wasn't ever able to reach the heights of his time creating Universal Monsters. Instead, he took his old-school methods and color-to-black-and-white knowledge where many other industry professionals who were becoming less relevant in the mid-century went to television. The years after World War II saw a dramatic shift in the themes and stories that drove audience interest. With soldiers returning with horror stories of war, the appeal of gothic monsters born from man-made abominations turned more to monsters of mysterious, magical, or otherworldly sci-fi origins. Foam rubber applications during the mid-century increased in use and in scale, as makeup artists looked for ways to turn actors into aliens and sea creatures. Face prosthetics gave way to full-face masks. The Vincent Price-led murder thriller The Mad Magician in 1954 was one of the first films to incorporate a full pullover mask application. The pullover masks gave way to full-body rubber suits, like the one worn by actor Ben Chapman in The Creature from the Black Lagoon that same year. Hollywood special effects makeup was running wild. Yeah, hey, do you think Vincent Price's uh, senior portrait looked like he was like scary in it? Oh, yeah, he was terrifying since he was born. Do you think he had the mustache? Ooh, uh, he, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Do you think he had the mustache as an infant? <laughs> I can't imagine baby Vincent Price not with a mustache. Right? Like the baby in the Adams Family? <laughs> do you think Vincent Price was always in black and white? Like, Can you imagine like in, in Pleasantville? Like, like his whole life, <laughs> he was in black and white, even though the rest of the world was in color. Well, That's how I imagine Vincent Price. At some point, he does you know, come into color. Right, because like he's, Dorothy, he's in that Michael Jackson thriller video, and he's in color. Or is he in black and white in that video? Huh. I don't know. Maybe he he isn't was he in black, in and, black white and white in Edward Scissorhands? Isn't he? Aren't all the? <laughs> isn't he only in the past and all the past <laughs> scenes? He's in black and white. This is a. Ve- you know what? Switches. Find a color picture of Vincent Price. We dare you, and then tweet us yeah. at Switch Envelope. I think I think we've come up with a. With a theory now. Yeah, yeah. Vincent Price is always in black and white. Yeah, and Hollywood special effects makeup in the 50s was terrible. (laughs) Hollywood needed new blood. They needed talent, new artists, preferably people who were trained by the previous generation, but were hungry to innovate and push the medium forward. They needed to look outside of Hollywood to North Hollywood. (laughs) Wherever they look. West Hollywood? They needed to be outside the fucking the, Westmore family. The Hollywood Hills. Just the hills. No, because the Westmores probably lived in the hills. Calabasas? Mm, well, maybe. Somewhere. <laughs> somewhere somewhere north LA. <laughs> or Ventura. Or New York. I don't Ventura. Know. <laughs> Ventura. Yeah, definitely Ventura. That's where all the artisans were were hanging out, <laughs> special effects wise. The valley. Just go deep Van into Nuys. the valley. They needed to go to Van Nuys to get the <laughs> To get the real makeup, new blood. That's where Vincent Price hung out. But no, they needed makeup artists from television, Corey. Um, but, Jeff, 
isn't television where the relics from the pre-code era landed when Hollywood deemed that they had no more use for their expertise? Well, we know it's where the actors who can't get off of a soap opera happened back then. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm Actors that couldn't make make the jump until the late aughts. The cast-offs. <laughs> And those relics were training a new batch of artists that had more freedom to try new things and work smarter and quicker than their movie counterparts. In the later 1950s, when the quality of TV makeup began to catch up to that of film, those eager artists began to find work on motion pictures. Enter John Chambers. He was a trained commercial artist with a huge hog. Wait, wait, what? Yeah, you know... did copious amounts of cocaine and had sex on film. Are you thinking of the guy that actually like robbed a house and uh, stole a lot of money and then he was in the Wonderland murders? Yeah, Mark Wahlberg played him in that that, uh, that movie. Yeah, not John Chambers. That's John Holmes. Oh. Pornographer. 1970s. Yo, I'm a like very, a, very large penis. I'm like two decades off. Yeah, yeah, not him. Sorry. Apologies to John Chambers and his family. <laughs> Honest mistake. Definitely honest mistake. Well, John Chambers, he worked as a dentist during his enlistment service in World War II. Following the war, Chambers put his medical study of anatomy... Yeah, he's got the anatomy. (laughs) Again, I think that's Holmes. Oh, sorry, sorry, that's John Holmes. Sorry, I just just got flipped. I flipped him up, flipped him him around. honest mistake. Apologies to the Chambers family. (laughs) Keeping John Holmes' life alive. Yeah, sorry. No, Chambers put, R.I.P. His, he put his medical study of anatomy to use as a surgical technician, building prosthetic limbs and assisting in the reconstruction of faces of wounded soldiers for the VA. Oh, wow. We brought that way down yeah, there. It's much more noble than doing porn. John Chambers was a hero. And his creative side was also calling. Wait, you're telling me that this man was reconstructing faces for soldiers in the VA... And then he decided, I want to go be a star in Hollywood, <laughs> and left to do makeup. So I, and we're calling him a hero. I don't know. Look, I don't really feel it. He spent all of a war looking at the mangled mouths. We're talking about the Civil War, right? No, World War Two. World War Two. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I was close. I was close. He he spent that entire war looking at the mangled mouths of soldiers, probably some that were wounded because of you know, munitions, fire, or whatever. Yeah, we're actually saying, this is serious. This is a good thing that he did. And then, following that, he spent years reconstructing some of those soldiers' faces. I'm sure it was all just too much at one point. It was just like, I need something fake. I need to not be surrounded by so much sort of reminders of that sadness. And what he does then is he, to not be around all the reminders of the sadness, is he takes all the grotesque looks that he found, and he puts fake versions of them onto people so he can constantly be reminded of what he saw in the hospital. Jeff, it's like therapy. He channels that into art. And then when he sees these people that are not messed up, he's like, hey, you know, I saw something real fucked up. I want to make you look like it. But he can also then take it off, right? It's like being uh, the Funkle or the fun ant, right? You're like all cool with the kid, but you get to give him back. Okay. Right? Sure. It's not real, right? You're just having an afternoon with a child play pretending real adulthood. Okay, I feel you. By the 1950s, Chambers would go from making soldiers' faces whole again to building new faces for actors 
when he began training for film makeup under 20th Century Fox elder statesman Ben Nye. Chambers found work in both film and TV, but it was his foam rubber work on the NBC TV shows of the early to mid-60s that helped his name rise through the ranks. He was on the makeup team that paid homage to the Universal Monsters created by Jack Pierce for the series The Monsters, employing many of the color-to-black-and-white film conversion techniques that Pierce had mastered. Chambers is also credited for creating the iconic pointed ears worn by Leonard Nimoy as Spock in Star Trek. These instant classic TV makeup applications paved the way for his crowning achievement in 1968, the movie Planet of the Apes. By today's standards, the makeup for the Planet of the Apes seems eh, a bit clunky. And not too far of a step from the pullover masks of the previous generation. However, Chambers' design and execution allowed for far more of an actor's expression to shine through. The separate lower jaw pieces allowed for more realistic articulated movements. For 1968 standards, the simian makeup on the hundred or so actors playing the apes... Semen makeup? Again, that's John Holmes... Gotcha. Sorry. This is Chambers. So John Holmes did semen makeup. John Chambers did semen makeup. Yes. Uh, gotcha. John Holmes worked exclusively in semen makeup. We are like junior high children. <laughs> John Chambers made up a uh, hundred or so actors playing apes. And that makeup was a marvel that helped launch multiple sequels, a TV series, and multiple reboots. The following year, in 1969, the Academy would award Chambers with an honorary Oscar for his makeup achievement. And we know that honorary Oscars are about as good as nothing? Yeah, it's just chocolate wrapped in foil. Go ask Peter O'Toole. Yeah. <laughs> by the 70s, Chamber worked... That's By the way, that's the 1970s, not the 1870s. Remember? We're talking movies. Every week. By the 70s, Chambers worked on films like The Apes sequels, Phantom of the Paradise... Really? Paradise? Phantom of, the Par- Phantom of the Paradise? Phantom of the Paradise. It's okay. a wonderful film. As well as uncredited work on films like Valley of the Dolls and Jaws. However, Chambers would find a greater purpose for his makeup prowess when he was once again called to serve his country. Uh, it seems like by this time he would have been too old to go to Vietnam, Jeff. His service wasn't in the armed forces, Corey, although I don't think anybody was too old to go to Vietnam. Maybe they just <laughs> sent everybody over there. I guess. Yeah, I think it was just old men, young men, whatever. Hmm. But actually, Corey, his service was in espionage. Dun-dun-dun! Oh, Wait, what? Wait, he was a fucking spy? No, no, oh. he wasn't. But he was contracted to create disguise kits for spies. Oh, so the CIA saw the pilot episode for Mission Impossible that Chambers worked on, and then they decided that they too needed a disguise guy, so why not just get that disguise guy? No, they were actually all really, really into James Bond, and all the guys oh. from the CIA were super, super like like uh, Sean Connery guys, <laughs> yeah. and so they wanted their own cue, right. and so they got this guy. Gadgets, disguises, whatever. They need a kit. He needs a kit. Yeah. Our spies need kits. You know what we're missing in the espionage game, other CIA fellows? Yes. <laughs> that sounds legit. I guess then it makes sense that during the Iran hostage crisis in 1980, they already had his number in the Rolodex to get him to assist in setting up a fake production company as a front for Agent Tony Mendez's rescue operation, codename Canadian Caper. 
The story of that mission would later be immortalized when John Goodman portrayed Chambers in the Ben Affleck Best Picture winning film, Argo. Chambers would go on to create the special effects makeup for the follow-up to the slasher film Halloween and take an uncredited job working on Blade Runner before he retired in 1982. But his legacy was firmly planted. He is one of the few makeup artists to have an Oscar and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I saw someone peeing on it the other day. It was pretty crazy, you know? Dude, people are constantly yeah. peeing on I wouldn't want a star. So people are constantly <laughs> peeing on those stars. I don't know, man. I want a star just so I can go pee on it. He's the only makeup artist to also have received an Intelligence Medal of Merit. Yeah, that he had to keep secret yeah, for I, years. Corey, why don't you tell all the uh, switches what an Intelligence Medal of Merit actually is? Because I have no fucking clue. So that is a, a medal that's given out to civilians via the CIA. So it's like the Medal of Honor from the CIA. Kind of, yes. And it's super secret and you're not allowed to talk about it. John Chambers could not talk about it. He was, like, sworn to secrecy about it. Uh, you know, it's sort of like um, uh, the way it's like a, a lonely star in CIA's headquarters, right? The star on the wall, right? Okay. It's an anonymous, sure. uh, you know, way to recognize somebody who did something for the country. Um, he's basically one of those stars. And he wasn't allowed to talk about it until it was declassified in 1997. Then an article was written in Vulture, and then they made the movie. So, but you know, cool, yeah. But while John Chambers was otherwise occupied with spycraft in the '70s, another makeup artist bred in the world of TV would lead the makeup world down a new and innovative path. Self-taught wonderkind, Dick Smith, bucked tradition and trends, and reinvented new techniques that would become the new standards of special effects makeup for modern film. From his basement workshop in New York to the silver screen, Smith would become a real game changer in the industry. And as movie-going audiences' thirst for blood and terrifyingly grotesque imagery on screen intensified, the line of makeup artists under his tutelage would also become the new titans of special effects makeup. You think, what would you think about having a name Dick Smith? <laughs> Dick Smith? Yeah. His name's Dick Smith. So Dick Smith does sound like he would be a pornographer. Yeah. It's Dick Smith. Naturally. <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening to Cinovations Special Effects Makeup Part 2. Join us for Part 3, where we'll look at the professional achievements and Cinovations of Dick Smith and the special effects makeup masters like Rick Baker that followed in his footsteps. We'll press through the buckets of blood of 80s slasher films all the way to the digital age where computer-generated imagery works in tandem with practical makeup in ways that previous generations could only dream possible until they become incredible Cinovations. Ooh, I think that's the best, tan- that's the best tan- tandem Cinovations we yes, had. It was, yeah. it was, it was. It was very nice. Thank you for listening to Switch the Envelope Presents Cinovations. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe and like or, you know, touch all of the buttons at the bottom of your podcast player for this episode and others. But more importantly, suggest this to a friend because that is more powerful than any click of any button on your podcast player. And we thank you in advance. Of course. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at SwitchTheEnvelope or on Twitter at SwitchEnvelope. Of course, you can always go to switchtheenvelope.com for all your Switch the Envelope needs. And until next time, 
go see Planet of the Apes? Or... The Wizard of Oz? Or Jekyll and Hyde, the 1931 oh, version? Go see the 1931 Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. Super innovative. Or, or anything by John Holmes? Yeah, that too. And we'll see you later, Switches. See you later, Switches. Talking movies every week. Talking movies every week. Sinovation. 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 Cinovation. Switch the Envelope is written and produced by Jeff and Corey. Cinovations is a Riff Laugh production. All episodes of Cinovations and Switch the Envelope are mixed and mastered at Studio 85. Cinovations is filmed in front of a live studio audience. 